0: Hi, my name is Arman, and you're listening to the yes, I Am podcast. At this podcast, we have vulnerable and venting conversations full of integrity with guests about their life stories and how it influences who they are today. You can follow me on Instagram at ArmanASKZ to stay connected. And for more information, you can follow the YesIM podcast on Instagram at YIA underscore YesIM. And now let's get inspired. Welcome to Yes A.M. podcast season three. Uh, this is going to be our introduction to the whole season, which is going to be a lot about the process of decision making and why we make certain decisions. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Just uh, loving life here in South Florida and I uh, can't wait to get back outside.
0: <laughs> How, I mean, Florida, is, is it going to get colder? No, it, it never gets cold in Florida. No,
1: But now you wouldn't know that if you if you look at people in Miami. You know, as soon as it touches sixty-two, they're in um, a, a cashmere sweater and a oh, in and extra layers. And you, you'll see students bring blankets to class. Um, but no, for, for someone like myself, uh, it doesn't ever really feel cold in, in Miami. Never. I don't I don't consider fifty-five a uh, a cold streak.
0: I mean, it's, it it is all this humid too, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're in the tropics. That always so
0: helps, you know.
1: There's always that level of moisture.
0: Moisture. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, we always start uh, the conversations that you're at Yes, I Am with a very simple question, but it's it's very important to ask because that's how uh, the audience will relate to you as a guest in Yes, I Am podcast. And that is, what is your story?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I'm happy to be here. Um, really thrilled to participate and share my story. And then see how I can connect it or relate it to the topic of the day. So um, I'm by profession an ethics uh, professor at University St. Thomas University in Miami Gardens. Um, I, I've worked at other Catholic universities in the nation, Catholic seminaries, Catholic high schools. I have a PhD uh, in theology. My specialization is ethics, so I teach environmental ethics, business ethics, healthcare ethics, um, addiction, spirituality and ethics, uh, sports and ethics, a host of things which ethics comes down to decision making so I think that's what will uh, sort of provide the uh, connection between myself and the topic but also uh you know I, I had a, a long life before uh becoming an academic and you know professor and, and director of the theology program uh once I was a division two men's basketball coach uh for Wheeling Desert oh. University uh I've held all sorts of jobs from um wine sales to Uh, healthcare, uh, administration, Um, I've worn a lot of different hats, Uh, I've done a lot of mission work, that's what led me to want to pursue a doctorate and a master's in theology, Um, so the mission work in the Dominican Republic was sort of the life-changing event um, that I detailed in one of my books, Um, That really reoriented uh, my my ethic or my ethos or how I see reality or how I judge reality or how I want to act in reality, Um, it was that aha moment, the light bulb moment, that um, really radically altered my life and put me in the place I am now, which is uh, having, a, having a blast at St. Thomas University and guiding their, their doctoral program, their master's program, their, their bachelor's program, and also still teaching some interesting courses, so.
0: What, 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 what drove you to get into ethics?
1: So it, it, that's a great question. What drove me to get into ethics was, uh, as a bachelor student at the University of Florida, I didn't see a lot of sound moral decision making uh, going on in our nation's capital and I did an internship there and I noticed a lot of. um, political deals were brokered uh, at dinner through lobbying efforts and it didn't seem like there was like a a moral foundation for for why certain things would be decided either way either uh, you know in favor or against. And so, when I did my mission work um, I rediscovered my my love of the Catholic Church I I grew up very Catholic. Um, and that love of mission work uh love of the catholic church and how that they you know provide all these services for for people on the margins of society um you know who don't have a, a water system who don't have an electricity grid um inspired me to seek further studies in theology and then theology ultimately led me to theological ethics um because i want to understand how to make the best decision in relation to any social issue using uh ancient ideas modern ideas that are christian by nature but also have their roots in aristotelian philosophy and platonic philosophy and have similar analogical thoughts in a number of different philosophies and theologies across the world
0: you know uh i really like what you said about there, there were some certain decisions being made but you didn't see the why and the roots behind it you know why they're being made and i think that's really related to the topic of the discussion today about the process of decision making and why we make certain decisions so let's just kick this with like, uh, kind of like a little bit of a foundation definition of what is the base and foundation of decisions that we make every day.
1: So the the base and foundation of decisions is going to be polyvalent. It's going to be pluriform um, because everyone it has a lot of idiosyncratic um, pieces of knowledge. It's all fragmented. Um, everyone's cobbled together these little pieces of uh wisdom from daily life from their different um programs at school none of this is universal so since it's um individualized and cobbled together and fragmented that's why as you noted um by listening to me and my experience in dc sometimes there isn't this universal guiding principle there's not something that's a go-to for people um in in western society um because after the enlightenment and, and um you know western europe people started to really run with the phrase, I think, therefore I am, "Cogito ergo sum, which emphasizes the pronoun I twice. It doesn't, it, it kind of neglects the fact that there used to be this foundational knowledge from the Greeks and Aristotle and Plato that then was integrated into Christian philosophy and theology by St. Thomas Aquinas and reappropriated throughout the ages. Um, and so I think you see a lot of gaps in um, people's decision-making, uh, processes, or as I would call a method, and it's more of this knee-jerk, uh, reaction or, um, an impulse reaction, um, that isn't actually given much thought. It's more of a habit. Uh, Pierre Bourdieu, a, a French sociologist who was uh, extremely famous in France at, at, at the turn of the century, he was actually on the, the cover of, um, uh, the, the Paris newspaper when he died, And that's wild for a sociologist, but he argued that uh, throughout the past 2000 years, there's always been a cultural habitus, which is, you know, Latin for habit. And it it means kind of like this cultural common sense that there was enough touchstones or, or points of emphasis that by and large, most everyone had the same general values, morals, and ways to sort of fall back and think through things. But um, again, after the enlightenment and, and secularism and the decline of the church and the rise of individualism and capitalism and other uh, philosophies from Nietzsche and things like that, um, that, that sort of habitus or, or common um, Western European sensibility sort of eroded and then globalization really, really splintered and fragmented that even more. So you really don't see much of um, a, a quote base or foundation Um, when people make important decisions, other than maybe ideology, you know, so uh, this political party's ideology, that political party's ideology, or a consumerist ideology that is sold to them by a US cultural narrative that has sort of replaced the habitus, this uh, understanding of the American dream, and the the vision and the imaginary that goes with it, and how one would sort of proceed to embody that or uh, achieve that dream, that that's sort of, maybe the only thing I could say that the common person in the United States would use, um, the, the, the values they pick up from television, from popular song, popular movie, um, it, their personal experiences, they cobble that together and have a, a vision of the American dream and, and maybe use that to, to guide their, their professional aspirations or personal aspirations and, and things like that.
0: Uh, so, uh how would how did it look like back in like back in the time you know when there was because you know a lot a lot a lot of uh, what you said about habits stuff are now influenced by the, our, our current environment. yeah so you
1: know? so so in, in the past there was a, a dominant cultural uh ethos because um in the west you know i'm not speaking globally um it would yeah. obviously be very different for asia um with their principles related to Taoism, Confucianism, uh, Zen, Buddhism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Or the Middle East, you know, which would always be codified and colored from um, Islamic uh, philosophy, Islamic theology. But speaking for the West, um, there was just a a, a cultural ethos that was dominated by uh, Christendom, Catholic church first, and then the splintering into um, the Reformation, Lutheranism, Calvinism, et cetera, et cetera. So there is still that sort of sensibility, which was used as a colonial tool or colonial apparatus um, in Latin America to, to then colonize and spread that sort of um, you know, cultural, cultural ethos that would sort of serve to form people's um, ways to see reality, judge reality, and how they ought to act in reality. And so um, I'd say that was sort of the base and foundation uh, that, that really shaped cultural views, perspectives um, on a larger scale, um, again, in, in modern Western society that then spread through colonialism and things like that.
0: And what was, the, what was like that pivotal time that uh, the whole system changed?
1: Wow, that's a great question.
0: Um, I'd say, you know, industrial revolution
1: starts it, um, because you start having the development of technologies that can spread ideas much more rapidly than before, you know, um, when, when Westerners were traveling East and, and making their way to India and the Silk Road and to you know, China and things like that, it, this is taking decades, right. To, to bring back any pieces and fragments of, of cultural insight, but, but, you know, really with the, the advent of uh, the Industrial Revolution in Western Europe, uh, that aided colonialism in the spread. And at the time it was a rapid spread. Now, you know, it, it would be uh, in, in extreme slow-mo in relation to today where we can all pick up our phone and access the, the cultural wisdom of uh, any country or group of people on earth and completely read you know, uh, books that we can have delivered to our house in two days. Um, but the industrial revolution really kicked it off, and then technology has just, you know, continued to uh, make that information transfer from one culture to another, another even more rapid as times went on.
0: And you know, uh, well, one thing that uh, still is the same is um, a lot of families' values and beliefs are still rooted in those beliefs and those times, you know, and. Uh, for someone that's uh, born in uh 21st century how, how much impact do you think they will get from the family and those values that are rooted with that type of you know culture and that type of wisdom and how much is affected by the social media and in what current environment
1: yeah so if you look at it um maybe if like we looked at it as like a, a pie chart or something so i would say you know uh The the cultural wisdom, whether that be religious, uh, philosophical, um, or or just like, you know, insights from daily life, I would say those would be passed on within a family from generation to generation um, much more strongly, much more easily, and they would be adopted and accepted readily um, uh, until again, post sort of 1800, uh, you know, French Revolution, uh, Industrial Revolution those sorts of things, the rise of secularism, because it was just how um, reality worked. It, it was based on tradition, uh, traditio, something handed on, passed down, literally what the word means. Um, but now the traditions are, are, I think, less desired by um, younger generations because everything is coming at them due to technology um and everything is is new and so they have all these different things they can sort of cobble together at like a kaleidoscope it's very kaleidoscopic where they have a, a billion different pieces of information to choose from a billion different uh philosophical traditions uh religious ideas whereas before in 1742 uh someone who's 18 would have only known about religion philosophy cultural insights from their general town city or maybe region if they were, you know, fortunate enough to go off to a college and now it's just so vastly different. Um, I I really think that that again if we look at a pie chart that number over time would just reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce.
0: uh, don't you think um, the the technology and the social media is also in, uh, in in certain levels are still influenced by those traditions?
1: So that that's yes, it's there. It, it, those sites and platforms do have that content. I know because I follow several yeah. uh, religious figures, religious institutions, philosophy pages. Uh, there's a Nietzsche page. There's an Aristotle page. They they have daily quotes from from those gentlemen. Um, and, and while they're there, you have to actively seek them out and add them or make them part of your feed. Uh, you have to actively program them into what you see on your social media sites on a daily basis. They're not going to self-populate. Um, so you have to have the interest or the desire. So if, if the, the percentage is dwindling uh, over time of younger generations that are interested into these uh, religious cultural ideas, these philosophical cultural ideas, Um, They're not going to know how to access them. Sometimes when I teach I ask students if they've ever heard of um, someone who I would think when you know I went to the University of Florida, a a common philosopher, and the majority of the class generally has not. Um, Why is that I don't know maybe it's because those things aren't taught anymore in in the high school levels in private or public I'm not really sure. Um, But I think again that sort of plays into what I was saying with over time there's just less and less interest of classic philosophy, classic theology as, as culturally important ideas, because there's such a, a, a smorgasbord of ideas at the fingertips of everyone with their, their handheld device, I, iPhone, I, iPad, laptop, things like yeah. that.
0: And uh, you, you brought up uh, creating that interest and desire, and what do you think, what creates the interest and desire to a young individual a 21st century uh, a person or even like older a little bit uh, to go and do their own research and, you know, dig for their own, uh, do, basically do not just grab it from social media, but they, they go deep and look at more details and uh, psychological and philosophical kind of point of views. I
1: think this is the importance of, of education and formation. You know, um, it's so important to go to college and go to college for the right reason. Um, some people, a lot of my students uh, over time think college is about an experience where at the end you get a sheet of paper that says to someone you're employed for Q dollars. That's yeah. not the point of education. That's a that's a nice outcome. But the point of yeah. education is to go and expand your mind, to expand uh, the limits of your uh, horizon that you've gained through 18 years of study at the high school level by ch- taking challenging courses that are going to maybe conflict with your worldview so that you take a step back and think, well, why do 18 people in this classroom disagree with me? Are there valid reasons? Um, Is this all just an emotional argument that we're all having? Or is there logic in place that these people are using where they're gathering data and facts, and then they step back and evaluate it using some philosophical or theological paradigm, and then they're arguing for a certain action based on that very logical flow of intellectual knowledge? And those are things that can only be done in a controlled environment like college. If you try to do things like that um, at a party at your friend's house or at at a public gathering after work, things can become contentious. It's not moderated. Um, There isn't an official structure or schedule. And there isn't also someone leading the conversation as a credentialed uh, authority, right? Um, I I see lots of self-appointed authority figures on social media when they talk about, you know, anything from, uh, sociology to, um, government spending, you know, it's, I don't know how someone who has a medical degree in, um, uh, you know, uh, orthopedics, how, how they're an expert simultaneously on, uh, defense spending. That's interesting. But, um, in in a a college environment, you, you get that opportunity to acquire different, uh, strata of logic streams Mm -hmm. every subject has a a logic to it biology chemistry anthropology sociology theology you know that's really what theology is all about theology is the logic of god right anthropology is the logic of the human sociology is logic of society so by taking those classes and really trying to get into them instead of just passing them to get to the degree at the end that's what makes you a, a more civically minded person a more civically engaged person someone who's going to understand um, certain characteristics uh, like solidarity, compassion, mercy, and why you should embody them, especially if you call yourself either Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or something like that, because all of those things are codified in all of the religions.
0: But the, the, the problem I have with, you know, it, it, it is great to learn all those different logics. Yes, but uh, why shouldn't a student make that decision to go learn something that's either opposing to their point of view or something that is not their point of interest or not even related to your major.
1: Yeah, well, should... I, I think it's important to take things unrelated to your major. Um, I'll use an example that is, is from my personal experience with one of my friends who went to the University of Florida. Great school. He's a great guy. He's really smart, but his degree is in accounting. Mm-hmm. So 60 hours of his four-year education, half of it, literally half, was in a field related to business and accounting. Yeah, Business and accounting doesn't tell you much about how to be a good citizen related to the environment. It, um, it doesn't. Yeah, unless you take business environmental ethics, which is a very narrow course, and most people aren't gonna yeah. take that, it's only got 12 seats, and it's only offered once every four-year cycle. Right. But if you take a complimentary selection of liberal arts courses, um, such as all those ologies I talked about, uh, or philosophy or things like this, um, then you have the opportunity to take all the business acumen or all the accounting acumen and say, I'm, I'm credentialed and certified to do this job very well. However, I also learned um, how to listen to people in my sociology and leadership class because I studied people like Martin Luther King. I, I studied people like Mother Teresa. I studied people like Nelson Mandela. And they all gave these wonderful, interesting um, stories or narratives that had different morals and virtues and ethical uh, narratives. And that really helped me as a student understand that there's life beyond my, my narrow field of accounting and my narrow profession that pays my bills, which is why I went to school. But there's also these other classes that helped me understand that, hey, I can be civically engaged and help better my, my city, my nation, my state, my, my global community by engaging um, in, in this sociologically accepted practice of Q.
0: But, but, but I understand the importance, but like, you know, we've we been talking about right now process of decision making and what I'm really interested in, like why shouldn't a student be interested about learning this, you know? Okay, you know, yeah, it's great to learn them, but why should I make that, that choice? You know, there should be something that would drive me to do that, you know? Or something that will kind of make me interested to kind of put that CRN code of that class into my, uh, I don't know, registration. Right, but, so
1: that, that's like the challenge, I guess. That's that's yeah, the, yeah. this is a million dollar question. How, um, or as you said, why?
0: How, why or how? I mean, you, you can phrase it both ways, basically. Right. Yeah. Either so, way,
1: how would be how do I or how does a, a group or how does anyone influence another person to to want to take um, philosophy of music and, and understand why the lyrics of Tupac Shakur have philosophical insight for a person living in the 21st century in Kansas, right? Yep. That's that's what the, the director of marketing asks his team probably, you know, the start of every semester. How do we make these classes? How do we get the word out? How do we make it appealing? Why should someone want to take this? I think at a social, a larger social level, um, maybe we could do better as a nation getting courses into the high school curriculums public public high school curriculum that, that start to wet students young adults appetites into thinking about these sorts of things instead of taking sort of the road memorization classes that, that i took when, when i was in public high school that gets their their interest peaked um because it's not necessarily going to come from certain cultural touchstones i mean yes a student could get lucky and watch the movie count of monte cristo and they go, wow, I really want to check out another book by Alexander Dumas. And he's then uh, introduced to certain um, philosophical uh, literature from France that has a lot of great uh, stories and values about ethical decision making and moral decision making in the characters' lives. But he, he may never see that. So it's, it's really the million dollar question that I don't know if I could answer. Like, I, yeah. I, know, why, I know why. Here's the short answer on why to be a better person.
0: Well, but yeah, you, have we, to sell,
1: you have to market that narrative. You have to sell that narrative. You have to get that narrative out there in ways that is attractive and draws people in. And that's the challenge, I think, of every church, university, school of philosophy, Scientology, anyone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that, that is something we are doing here through our podcast to kind of influence people to make that decision of becoming a better person every day. You know, but uh, it is a million dollar question, as you said, you know, because it also goes back to do students do, do really want to begin in school? You know, why? how can we first get them interested in school? Then, you know, okay, tell them, show them the path, or I like, tell them like, these are desirable, these are important for you to learn, which is another type of conversation we should, we, I should have or we should have later on, but yeah. Yeah, because that's uh, all
1: about narrative. Uh, it, just for like, you know, a brief reflection on what you said, yeah. So one way, this, this is an effective way, this, this is uh, how. So one way I get students interested, like you mentioned, um, is, is narrative. This is a quote from Aristotle that narrative is the oldest form of wisdom because everyone's a storyteller. You can look at um, tribes in Africa that, that predate Christ for 2,000 years, uh, Jewish storytelling that was oral for, first, then got codified in written word. Um, all cultures emerge out of spoken word and then become written. So I tell a story of my own biography that starts, you know, with I was this type of person. I grew up very Catholic, but then I strayed away from the Catholic church because I went to UF and I engaged in hedonistic party life and a lot of uh, self-aggrandizing autonomous decisions that at the time I thought were great because I had all this freedom and I was expressing my individual ego. And I learned in the end that those were all very bad decisions that had, um, uh, no moral weight, and they were morally bankrupt, and they led me down a, a path that took me years to recover from, and I go through this whole narrative and story, and I can tell from the students' faces by the end of the first day, I've got them. They, they want to learn more because the story is relatable. You can connect to it because most students can identify with what I, I describe in the story because I, I reveal quite a bit about uh, my, my biography, and so I yeah. think that's one way to, to get young people really interested in thinking about things they would never take or, or ideas they would never consider is to present it to them in some form of narrative, uh, a story that's very creative, imaginative, and they can picture things and see themselves in, in the scenes, at, 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 you know, in that way.
0: I, I want to I ask you a quick question and just give me a very short answer uh, in terms of, uh, I just want to know your opinion uh, in terms of when it comes to making decision or, or like, sorry, not decision, choice, do you believe in people that should have the option or choice to make any decisions that they want?
1: That's a, that's a tough question. Um, yeah. Should they have the right? I mean, yeah. I mean, people should have freedom to decide things within the the boundaries of law. Um, but even, you know, certain laws are antiquated and outdated and need to be challenged um, by the community. And if the community popular opinion, opinion prevails, then those yeah. things change on their own. But I like to put it this way. When it comes to making a a choice, a decision for or against, a yes or a no, a this path or that path, I I like to look at it as a methodical process. This is something I I think a lot of people lack, a a, a go-to recipe, if you will, uh, for how to cook up a decision, right? Step one, I do this. Step two, I do this. Step three, I do this. So what's interesting is uh, Thomas Aquinas, borrowed from Aristotle, what aristotle called phronesis, and thomas aquinas turned it into the intellectual virtue of prudence it's three steps c you, you see a problem you gather some information on it through consulting other experts two you take a step back from the expert's opinion consult your own religious tradition and what uh leaders like saints or or uh in in my case and in his case uh, a pope would have to say and then you put those things in dialogue you have the facts of reality right and then you have this, this uh, ancient wisdom or this traditional wisdom and you put them into dialogue and you see kind of what they say to each other, what can inform the other. And you take that conversation, that dialogue uh, and, and look towards action and go, okay, here's the practical action that I can take that is, um, it's intelligent because I've gathered facts, it's wise because I've considered the, the, the past and uh, insights from tradition but I'm going to make that, that, uh, that alive again in, in the now by in acting in stepping forward into that tradition.
0: Got it. So it's, I, I kind of want to summarize it. Observation, basically you see, observe, you uh, take a step back, looking from the, out of the box, bring your own values inside and analyze the, all of the information that you have, then make the action.
1: You got it. So actually, there's a guy named uh, Joseph Cardine. He was a priest in Belgium uh, in the 20th century, and he studied Aquinas, and he turned the Latin into See Judge Act. Uh, you know, it was obviously in him Flemish uh, and then French. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been codified by the Catholic Church. Pope Francis uses it. Uh, mm-hmm. Pope John 23rd, who's now a saint, used it. Pope Paul VI used it. Uh, Latin American Liberation theologians used it. They, they call it ver hugar, actuar, see, judge, act. Um, It's really sort of the now canon, uh, uh, canonical method in how to make reasonable, rational, theologically informed uh, judgments in the Catholic Church with an eye towards action. Always, you know, first and foremost, for those who are on the margins of society, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are in prison, those who are sick, and the strangers that come to your places and, and need welcome. Um, so I, I think that C.J. Judge Act is a really simple um, phrase to, to use as a method. Anyone can pick it up and sort of slot in information, data, statistics, qualitative things they hear from your parents, from your friends, from cultural um, uh, juggernauts, but also from ancient sources, from Aristotle to St. Francis of Assisi to Gandhi to uh, you know, Lao Tzu. All these things can be integrated because it's got different moving pieces. And so it's very holistic, but it's also compartmentalized in each of the steps. It's also like the scientific method too.
0: Well, yeah, Uh, it was in my science book on some grade like observe and then bring all of your data and then analyze them and then make the reaction or action or whatever. Yeah, it, it is scientific, yeah.
1: Yeah, my students always raise their hand after I teach it to them and they go, So this is like the scientific method, but for theology. And I say, yeah,
0: (laughs) it is similar, but uh, I mean, then the question becomes, but do we use it in daily life, which probably, yeah. And
1: that's what, that's why theology has to, or should be made practical. You know, I I tell people my, my doctoral degrees in practical theology and they go, what's that? I go, well, I don't want to just talk about God abstractly. I don't want to talk about virtue and, and moral decisions abstractly. I want to talk about them in practice, in, in situ, in context, in culture, um, because what's the point of knowing Matthew 25, 35, where you're, you're supposed to feed the hungry if you don't go do it? What's the point of knowing to welcome the stranger if you then want to erect a, a border wall that, you know, it's always hard for me to hear a Christian say, um, oh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in favor of erecting a border wall. It's like, did you read Matthew 25, 35 through 45? It says to welcome strangers. That's hard to do with a wall. You know, that's that, that's that disconnection between what you see and then how you judge it. If you call yourself a Christian, you know, if, if you're judging these people fleeing their country and you, you, you call yourself a Christian, you, you should welcome them and not, you know, um, force them back and things like that.
0: Let's, let's move on to, uh, this was just, I mean, this was just my first question, but we had a great conversation on it. Uh, okay. let's the second one, which, uh is I, I, I usually define two, uh, two different decisions. One is emotional and one is logical, but in your point of view and your perspective, how would you define each emotional decision and logical decision?
1: Yeah, so how I would define a logical decision is, uh, is strictly um, intellectual. You have to be taught uh, kind of what I said, like a, a method for making a decision yeah. and you have to have intellectual data. You have to have formation to do that. You have to have a master teacher to instruct you in um, how to access data, gain data, to make a decision that is informed by data. That's how you make a wise uh, decision. So that's how I describe logic. And again, you can use logic of the the society, logic of the religion, et cetera. Emotional, that is something that still has a logic to it, right? But that logic tends to be um, more material. So um, it's gonna be something without a a, uh, proper teacher, a proper location like university. It's gonna be, something uh, emotional logic is something visceral, something fleshy, um, something guided by maybe your first order desire, maybe just going from see to act, right? Instead of having that that mechanism to step back and judge pr- prudently, um, you know, sort of uh, wading through the water. This is more of a, a, a knee jerk. Um, if you're emotional, if you're mad, you pick up the phone. Uh, you know, that's an emotional decision. We all get mad. We all act too hastily. I think uh, a logical decision would be having the ability to refrain from a knee jerk sort of um, emotional decision that may be uh, too rapid that you, that you might regret because it's just visceral without um, a lot of intellectual thought to, to sort of slow down the, the reaction and the choice.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, emotional decisions are the ones that definitely really influence on our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. oh they for sure we exist within our comfort zone we we feel they like it's it's easier for us to make those reactions or it's sometimes not even decisions they're reactions
1: it's a reaction it's not really a decision i completely yeah. agree that it's it's more of a knee-jerk reaction and not something that you contemplate or weigh different outcomes and then make a sound rational decision using reason from some uh, form of logic
0: mm-hmm. um I want to ask you something, and uh, do you do you do you think uh, more uh, people do not because people say like I I think uh, a lot, you know, and you know, use I'm thinking right now or something mm-hmm. like that a lot in a, within a conversation, you know. But do you really agree that people really know how to think? Have we taught people how to think, you know, before telling them to solve a problem?
1: No, especially if you add the word critical. Um, So critical thinking is something a lot of universities that I do a lot of consulting work for do. They're really trying to redesign programs to uh, increase students' critical thinking skills. Because the last thing you want to do is produce a bunch of cheaper lemmings in in a university four-year degree experiment. You don't want an emerging adult to just buy everything they're told. You want them to learn how to question, right? That's what makes you a critical thinker. So to to learn how to think requires teaching someone logic, like if A then B, right? Or how to create a logical argument. Uh, In this essay, I will argue. Well, how are you gonna argue that? Well, I will support my argument by appealing to source X, Y, and Z. Things like that really aren't taught um, or were not taught when I was in high school. um, I never learned how to make a formal argument using reason and logic. Um, it's just not something that is part of a, the U.S. cultural ethos. Um, it, we're more uh, concerned with depositing facts in, into students' minds and hope they can recall that, um, like like a like a bank deposit, right? Um, this is actually Paulo Freire's, uh, the famous educational philosopher. He called it the banking model, where you know a lot of teachers just open up uh, theoretically, you know, students' mind and deposit facts, and then it's up to the student to recall and apply those. They're never taught. Okay, here are the facts, here's the data, here's, here's the, the information, but here's a method of how to put it into practice, how to implement it, how to embody it. And that really goes back again to method. You have to have a, a foolproof one, two, three on how to make eggs or how to make a moral decision.
0: Mm-hmm. They, right now you know, in schools, like they tell you the problem, they tell you, they teach you the lesson, then go figure it out. <laughs>
1: Right, right, without giving you a yeah. method or a model yeah. of, you know, at least like some guideposts, right?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I actually had this conversation in last week with someone that, uh, you know, they, they tell us to figure out two plus two, but they never told us how can we figure out or, or like logically think about why two plus two is four. Right, right, right. You know, you know they, it, it they, especially in, in schools, it's like they teach you the concept. I don't teach you the logic behind that concept.
1: Right. I like to break it down like this. Most people uh, like to teach you know that. Know that Freud said this. Know that your nursing program required yeah. you to know this. Know that Heidegger said this. Know that Jesus said this. But they don't say know how to take what Heidegger said and do it this way in your thing. Know how to take what Gandhi said and uh, practice it. Know how well,
0: to. Like, why did Gandhi say that?
1: Right. What, what in his time and his place yeah. motivated him to want to be that virtuous person? Yeah. Right? yeah. It's always know that. It's not know how or why because.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my, my next question is I mean, we I kind of want to stay in the emotional type of decision because that's just like so uh, happening in everyone's daily life. Yeah. And it's a, I, I, I want to say it's one of the, our biggest problems right now that people do not take the time to think, have conversations, mm-hmm. and really reflect or critical, think about the different problems. And I wanna know, uh, wh- what do you think is the impact of our, our childhood or our subconscious brain on the de- emotional decisions that we are making?
1: Well, I mean, it's everything, everything. Um, if we're looking at just um, how people react in the moment and they're not gonna step back and use some sort of logical methodical apparatus, and you're basically at the, the whim of whatever uh, society, culture, and, and the moment of your everydayness throws at you. And you only have your experiences from your childhood, from your K through 12, uh, all, all of your formative experiences in sports or with boyfriend, girlfriend, mom, dad, grandma. That's your only teaching tool. Now, that's, that's good and bad. So you have all these great pieces, uh, fragments of wisdom from your grandmother, that do help you in a a lot of situations. And you do have that one teacher in the 10th grade who was able to explain things to you in world history that really you you always will remember um, to do or not do this, that, or the other. Right, and here's why. And and you always have that one coach. Like I, I, you know, as a former division two coach and a former player, like I always have certain coaches, I remember life lessons that were not related to basketball. But by and large, um, as many good things as there are that you take away, There's also, you pick up your your mother's bad temper, or you pick up your father's inability to listen, or you pick up, for whatever good habits you acquire, you acquire the bad habits too, right? So you have to live with both of those, that you can use the the good habit of your grandmother from always doing this, but then you have the bad habit that that you picked up along the way through just general everyday formation that is gonna limit you from, um, you know, flourishing and transforming into someone who's always growing in their thinking growing in in their moral um their their moral vision their moral action that's one thing that college does and even grad school and and, uh all these programs they just allow you opportunities to to grow in self-awareness self-development self-understanding and also even outside of university programs um a, a friend of mine he and his girlfriend conduct all these wellness seminars uh, in, in parks in Miami, and they, they lead people through yoga, through breathing exercises, um, all sorts of flexibility things to, to also improve uh, their life. So it doesn't necessarily always need to be in a college. There's different forms of intelligence, different forms of logic. But um, yeah, the ones acquired that are strictly coming in, into play and emotional can be, can be good or bad, but you know, it, it's really everyone's idiosyncratic and acquire those from such a different milieu. That you never know when one is going to flare up or be applicable or, or usable.
0: Um, uh, I want to, I want to, uh, I have two questions I really want to ask you, and uh, because for the sake of time, I want to move on a little bit. So, uh, does making a logical decision mean that you will not be in touch with your emotions?
1: No, um, if we go That's, back, to, yeah. yeah, if we go back, this is a misnomer. Most people think it has to be wow. either or. Most people think it's either or with everything in life. I like to say it's both and, or it's, it's, and always. So what I mean by that is go back to see judge act. You don't see separately and then judge and act. It's actually hyphenated. It's one stream of consciousness. So the first thing anyone does is see or, or feel or hear. Those are all going to, when I hear a song, I have an emotional reaction. I either love that song or man, that song is I don't vibe with that song but you're going to have an emotional register to it. Right. That's why the second step or part uh, in in the whole integral movement is so important because most people go from just that first emotional register to action. I love this song. I'm going to download it. Uh, I love this food. I'm going to eat more of it. Uh, I love this drink. I'm going to drink more of it. Right. And those can have dangerous outcomes. Um, If if you use your uh, emotions and your senses and what you see and what you hear and um, you know what you feel but then take that that second moment to sort of reflect contemplate um, think actual you know in, in, employ logical standards traditions insight wisdom from something outside of the moment outside of the the, the emotion then you're going to have the best success for taking an action that is informed um, with some sort of moral thinking or ethical thinking and you're going to uh, move beyond just this the simple, Person who goes straight from emotional um, feeling to, to reaction or perhaps overreaction, because you're always gonna have that step back, that that moment um, where you reason through, where, where you use some logic to, to think through what that emotion's about, where it stems from, where it could go if used or misused. And, and that's always gonna color your action differently if you than if you didn't do it.
0: He, he, here's, I want to kind of summarize it. Uh, you're think, when you were talking, that, that, that came to my mind. Uh, we can think about it, you know, when, when things happen, hurdles, challenges, whatever. Uh, feel the box, embrace when you're inside the box, you know, let, let, let it sink. Let, let, it, let it, like, really feel the every every aspect of that box. But when it comes to making the decision, step out of the box. Yeah. And then make your decision.
1: Yes, yeah, step out of the box, take a walk. Yeah, uh, with your favorite book, a- enjoy thinking about the box. But think about what the person in the book that you really respect would say about the box. Mm-hmm. Have a conversation in your imagination with that person. Say, you know, here's how I felt in the box. What do you think about how I felt in the box? What would you do if you felt that way in the box? Yeah. And then you know, Aristotle, Saint Augustine, Mother Teresa, it, it can you can have that imaginative conversation or dialogue in your mind. And in mm-hmm. that way, you have something beyond your ego. Mm-hmm. you have something beyond your intuition as a, a consult right uh, some some counsel you've received some advice and then you go make your action about what to do in the box or what to do with the box
0: so one, one of my one of my goals and dreams and uh one, one of the reasons i'm actually having this podcast is to kind of help people to make more of these logical decisions more of this stepping out of the box and not staying in the box um and uh one thing, uh, the way I believe that's how it's going to work is basically more getting in touch with yourself and understanding yourself. Mm-hmm. And, um, I want to give your opinion as well too, but, uh, the, the, two things I define is self-awareness and self-acceptance. Self-awareness is basically figuring out who you are and then self-acceptance is accepting the events that have happened to you and the who you are. Mm-hmm. And I think that will help you to be more in touch with your decisions. What's your opinion on that?
1: My opinion on both self awareness and self acceptance is uh, I, I'm in favor of having people engage in programs of learning and formation that do exactly that as their outcome. Mm-hmm. We, we should have more classes dedicated in liberal arts, humanities, uh, anthropology, things like that, philosophy. Yeah. Uh, they teach students how to examine their own life. Um, in, in my field of expertise, theology, there are uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola spiritual exercises, and it's a way to examine yourself. There's something called the examine, and you ask yourself all of these questions, but you do it in dialogue with um, scripture, things that, that Jesus said, because people who are Christian look up to Jesus as a moral exemplar, someone who has um, teachings of compassion and mercy for people, and that's something that they want to mirror or reflect or model. So the only way to get to that is through self-examination, self-understanding, self examination self understanding really grasping who you are, why you're that way, who you want to become, and um, the Christian tradition is actually excellent in a, a number of different ways in sending people into retreats to do this uh, over 30 wow. days a week um, because it's about disconnecting from your phone, disconnecting from
0: Very true. Uh, I did family. that.
1: <laughs> yeah, a, a retreat is a great way <laughs> to examine yourself because you don't have a TV, a phone, you're stuck with yourself, your your past, your actions. You're good. You're bad. And they, there's usually some sort of guide or leader who will give you questions to help find yourself a deeper, deeper, deeper way. And I think that's something that's been lost in um, the Western civilization uh, in, in modern, hypermodern, postmodern Western civilization. Are these beautiful practices and programs that worked for? millennia, you know, uh, it worked for 2000 years in Western Europe and Latin America and all the places the church went. Um, uh, but it's kind of a forgotten practice.
0: Yeah. Uh, hundred percent agree with you just said, <laughs> <laughs> Great. I just, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I really think, uh, well, well, one thing I just want to recommend to people is please don't do it by yourself only. Oh, because, you can't. Yeah. I mean, you you may be able to, but it's gonna be very very painful process, you know, because right, there are right. some some events that have happened to us that are like very deep down. It's trauma. Yeah, you have there, there are traumas. that have, yeah, they have created our darkest fears, you know. Yes. A lot of all a lot of our fears that have roots on our experiences in the past. Oh, of course, totally. And facing those can be very painful and hard and depressing sometimes, even yes. for people, you know, if you want to do it by yourself. That's that's you know, the great thing about. I would agree
1: with you, and, and really for all of the listeners, don't don't do it by yourself because you're also not going to know how to navigate, yeah. um, the, the feeling or the emotion, and you may not have the the logic uh, skills that uh, someone who has been you know a, a master of um, discernment for thirty years. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, that's why I do believe in people who are credentialed. They have taken a large portion of their life to, to read, to learn, to practice, to lead. And all of that experience is really what makes the difference. If you try to just do it on YouTube, um, you, you don't have that person to really go to after the, the, the class of the group does the meditation or, or, the, or the walkout in nature and then say, well, hey, I had this, this one idea stir up and I, I think I repressed it, but I really need to talk about it. You, know, you have that professional who's credentialed to listen to you and then give you some advice. If you don't, you're
0: stuck. Yeah, definitely, definitely, you're gonna be stuck. So yeah, I mean, definitely reach out to someone. Even uh, I whatever I mean, I actively do it in my daily life, and uh, they kind of reflect you on my life. Um, but one thing that helps a lot personally it is just me, and it you not know, work for everyone. Is just writing down, writing down, writing letters, especially you know, it could be a letter uh to to yourself you know yeah. I, I love writing letters to myself a believer
1: in that practice
0: yeah or like i i love to write letters to god you know i tell tell yes. him my emotions or you can like i can even uh, go express it like i'll go like i don't know I'll go to a high court somewhere and you just like start talking yeah you know, you know just because it's very important to have those feelings emotions and experiences out i want to yeah, as long as again, I think we gonna stay there.
1: Right. Otherwise, you're a pressurized coke bottle. Yeah. And eventually, that cap pops, but you overflow and spew in a way that is not the intention. Um, yeah. So I agree with you that getting those things out, whether in conversation, writing, um, and again, having you know that that spiritual guide or the the counselor mm-hmm. or whoever, it, you know, it, it can be a professional practice, religious, yeah. anything. But just somebody, even best friend, you know, just to be able to say things to get them out. So important for mental health, physical health, spiritual health.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, uh, the the last question I ask in all of my episodes, it's been, I think I don't even know the number how many <laughs> I've been recording, but uh, is uh, what is the biggest lesson you ever learned in your life?
1: Oh boy. <laughs> Okay, so I have two to choose from. Um, maybe, maybe one's better for, for another podcast. Um, so the biggest lesson I learned in my life is that you can have a middle, upper-class American life experience in the United States in the 20th and 21st century and be extremely unhappy. And you can go to a place where people live on a dollar a day and have no electrical grid and no water grid. And they're much happier than you and have a lot to teach you. And, um, that was the biggest, most important thing I ever learned was that you don't need to have what I thought I had to have to be happy. I, I bought the American dream as a teenager. I thought I had to have a big long chain. I used to wear uh, diamond earrings in my ear. I thought I had to wear certain clothes with certain logos on it to be accepted. I thought I had to listen to certain music and go to certain places at night and buy certain things. Mm -hmm. And I learned that was all, um, a facade. Um, it was a a narrative that was sold to me that doesn't necessarily produce what it sells you. It doesn't always end up producing happiness. I found a way to be happy. that requires none of that. And I learned that from people who had never seen a cell phone before, Mm -hmm. who did not have a shower, they took water from a, an oil drum and that's how they bathed or they went to the river. Um, I learned that all you really need to be happy is three things. And I learned it from the Dominicans. Uh, you have your family. They're happiest when they're with their family at a meal or do playing or something like that. The second thing is nature. So the second time they're most happy was when they're at the waterfall with you or at the sunrise with you or the sunset with you or walking through the jungle with you. And the third thing that they loved and, and really made them happy was God. So their favorite time um, aside from being with family or being in nature was either talking about God, talking about scripture, um, being in church, doing things for the church, uh, do service for others on behalf of the church um, because they wanted to acknowledge their creator and that their creator gave them uh, the, the natural world and their family. And they, they really understood that at an emotional level and at a logical level um that was just their culture
0: for sure what what i like that you said you know that you were looking for acceptance from others but the most most important acceptance is by yourself you need to be accepted by, by yourself about who you are
1: yep yeah agree. Uh,
0: agree. so we call ourselves yes i am because we believe you can put anything any word in front of it and become that person be that person if bob wants to choose a word and put it in front of yes i am what would you put in front of it
1: uh, that's that's a great question. It reminds me of a question that a professor asked me when I was an undergraduate. We had to write a word on the board, and and then we did a little activity. And um, I put "dreamer" up there. So "dreamer, comma, yes, I am."
0: Yes, I am dreamer.
1: Yep, I'm a dreamer. So, yep, you got you got to dream because you don't ever want to be happy with with reality, even if it's not necessarily your own life you're always looking outward right so you, you everyone should always look at reality and be like we could do better here we could do better here we could do better here, do better here. i dream of a better world I, I can see people not suffering how do i how do i act upon that judgment that something out there is not how it should be um, i i see this reality i can't take the suffering how, how do i change it
0: thank you for listening to this episode if you enjoyed it make sure to subscribe and share with your friends and as always Yes, I am.